0: Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here and to spend some time with you today, and uh, I know a number of you in the room in various ways, uh, because as you age, you accumulate more people you know. As a 35-year-old, I still have gathered a lot of um, knowledge of those. So what I'm going to do is talk about one aspect of research that we've been involved in that uh, attracted my attention. Uh, a number of years ago, I'll give you a little bit of a feel how we got into the neuroimaging part of it uh, and leave a bunch of other things aside. Uh, so uh, I did start as a Chicagoan I uh, discovered that Rob and I grew up very near each other. a uh, North Sider who moved to one of the suburbs. It's going to be the puppies year. Excuse me? It's going to be the company's (laughs) year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, My brother is already watching. My brother Ron is a pediatric neurologist up a little north here. And he keeps telling me, how can we get tickets to the World Series? I said, Ron, give yourself a break. Uh, But, while I was in Chicago, I went to medical school, as was said. And I got interested, actually, first in what would be called social engineering, psychiatry, uh, involved with some of the social movements of the time that were in, at the U of C, which was a hotbed out of that. And I was involved a little bit in it. And uh, that led me to the next phase of my life in Boston, uh, where we had some good years. This was actually during uh, one of those good years. Uh, And uh, then got involved at Mass General in training also in social community psychiatry, working in a number of the community clinics and community centers. So I was very involved in the community. But at a point in time, I discovered that uh, I was a bit frustrated with what I was doing as a researcher in this field. And I was attracted to an ad in the New York Times, where they used to put medical ads. So now, of course, it's online, Monster, and all that. But a, a guy who became my mentor put an ad in, and I was looking to do something different. I was looking all over the country, and I discovered I could move across town uh, to a place called Mass Mental Health Center, which psychiatrists knew was a leading center in the field at the time. But also, more particularly, to, Jocelyn, to join in really a study of social developmental issues in children with diabetes. And Stu Hauser uh, was my mentor and a good friend for many, many years before he died. Uh, and I also was attracted to the fact that unlike psychiatry, uh, you guys got numbers. So I could look at these numbers and I figured this ought to be good. I discovered, of course, it wasn't quite that easy. But but that got me involved really in uh, the field of, of psychiatry, in medicine, in diabetes, and the social community really of people with diabetes. So I, I always approached my work as a therapist and a clinician uh, as uh, from the perspective of, if you will, a social and community psychiatrist. So my community moved from Charlestown, North End, and other communities uh, to the community of diabetes. Uh, and then we came to Winthrop, uh, where we now have built a new research institute. We're trying to build that out, and I won't talk much about that. Uh, so let's start as clinicians. Uh, Rob and I were talking a little bit about the struggles of kids getting to diabetes. And in the old days, when we had a diabetes inpatient unit for educational purposes, uh, I used to make uh, rounds looking for interesting cartoons and things that kids would leave, capturing what their experience was. And in preparing any of these talks, I'm always reminded of many of those experiences. And this is a 10-year-old with new diabetes. If there are any nurses in the room, that's a nurse giving one of the first shots of diabetes to a kid who's scared out of uh, Actually, I'm not sure if it's his or her mind, because I never met a child that's scared. And then, of course, a few years out, teenager with diabetes. It's a little hard to see, but uh, this person is saying the ultimate pain is getting a high sugar. I don't know, uh, this is before the response of the DCCT. So this was based on the Jocelyn notion that it's not good to get high sugars, but there are probably many other aspects. And uh, like many kids I met with diabetes, this youngster probably thought he or she was a chocolate hawk, as they used to love calling themselves, because they wanted that street And over the years, I've gotten many, many people coming to me with concerns about how diabetes affects the brain. Whether it's high blood sugars, low blood sugars, uh, how is it affecting me? And of course, because an acute hypoglycemic episode leads to some form of changes in cognition, it's not hard to imagine if you get those that you might imagine and think and be concerned that it's a permanent effect. It's not going to go away. And so these are just two comments by two people. Uh, the second one was actually email. I've never actually met either of these people, but these are two of many queries I've gotten about it, highs and lows of what it could do to me. And, and it, it, it's a kind of mysterious area because unlike, as we know, many other areas, uh, we don't know a lot about diabetes in the brain. And it's only really becoming more studied in recent years. So we know, you know, and we know, there's lots we know about peripheral neuropathic and vascular complications. But there's a lot less research that's been done on the CNS. Whether it's basic science or clinical studies, and I'm a clinical researcher, so what I'm going to be talking about are really clinical studies. And in particular, focusing on uh, effects on the brain structure, function, and chemistry as we're talking about. And how that might be linked to cognitive decline patients and depression. Now, I'm going to focus the talk on type 1 diabetes. We've done research in type 2 diabetes as well. But for our research group, I would say uh, 65% of the work's in type 1. And that's been my major interest, uh, partly because of the DCCT-ENIC study. Uh, and so I'll kind of focus it. Plus, it's a simpler model for our purposes when we come back and talk and then I will, end talk a little bit about what we're planning for the next phase of that study, following a cohort that's now actually terrifically, this is good. Uh, I will make a comment about that right now. Some of these patients never assumed they would get old enough to retire, so they did not plan for retirement. <laughs> so now suddenly they're actually turning 60 and suddenly realizing, I've got to plan for retirement. So that's both sad, but also wonderfully happy that they can think about that. And Rob and I were talking a lot about what the old days were like when you were in the old like the whole with old people's time. So one particular comment, I'm a psychiatrist, so I think about the brain not just from cognitive psychologist, neuropsychologist perspective, I think about it as someone who treats people in therapy, uh, as I have for many years. Uh, and so I'm well aware of the fact that the networks that regulate cognition also are heavily involved in regulation, regulating affect and back and forth. And you can't neatly dissect these out. And in fact, we all know the two go together because when you're getting ready for an exam, you get anxious, you study harder, you learn harder. People take drugs to get their intensity up, and they actually do learn more at least times. So it's important to keep that in mind. Even though in the research field, you'll tend to see these bifurcant. There are a group of people interested in interventions to improve depression. There's some people doing terrific work in this area, uh, and there are people who are very interested in the effect on the brain, and they're usually focused on cognition. And those two groups don't actually talk to each other. It. It's like split-brain preparation. Uh, I was very pleased at a recent conference that I sponsored that actually. Uh, My colleague and friend Ron Kahn, in putting some stuff together, mentioned both of them, and I told him afterwards, you're one of the few people who's actually put these two together as a scientist in at least the same talk. So, for those of you who don't walk around the world of psychiatry, these are the (coughs) classic symptoms of what's called a major depression. I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about it just so we're talking about the same thing. Uh, You can see on the left side in the kind of orangey color, those are really uh, the affective symptoms that you think of as depression. But in fact, there are a host of physical as well as cognitive symptoms, and in particular decreased kind of concentration. Remember, there's a debate about is this because this is a pseudo-dimension of depression, is it related to the causes of depression, etc. But it's no question that it's associated with depressive disorders. And that's because of these links across the neural networks, undoubtedly. So just keep that in mind as as a sort of fact. Diabetes and depression go together. There's more of this. There's lots of studies that have shown this in various ways. None of them are terrific epidemiologic studies. They all have flaws. And there's some debate about the extent to which data like this is entirely accurate. But nonetheless, there's a general trend towards increased depression in people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes compared to the general population. And that's a whole, whole lecture on itself to discuss the, the issues related to that quality of the research and the interpretation of the results. This is data from a study we did a number of years ago at where we just did surveys and interviews of an assortment of patients coming to the clinic compared to a general medical practice that was nearby at a place called the Harvard Community Health Plant. It was area we were working with. And uh, we found similar data to what I showed you there. Uh, but one of the things that interested me back then was this. So we had assumed that kids, these are adults who we were studying. Uh, and most of them had diabetes onset between, let's say, zero and 30 years of age. Most of the people we were studying were 30 and older. Uh, and so it's an imperfect study in a lot of ways. But one of the things that interested me is we had assumed the kids who got diabetes in adolescence, uh, it was the kids who got diabetes under 10 that were most troubled in this little data set. Uh, it was actually a big data set, so a couple hundred people in this data. Uh, and at the time, I was uh, <coughs> interacting closely with a neuropsychologist, Chris Ryan, and some of you may know his work. And Chris and I have worked together since the 80s. And Chris had uh, shown me papers that they had done and others had done, showing that cognitive dysfunction in adolescents and young adults uh, was greatest in people who got diabetes before the age of five. And they had seen this repetitively. And so when I was talking to my colleagues who were uh, not oriented towards the medical side of diabetes, I said to them, well, maybe this represents actually a biological phenomenon in addition to the obvious psychosocial stresses of having complex chronic illness that as uh, of therapist work with all the time with families and with kids. And so that set us off on a kind of pathway that I'm going to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> so I already kind of said this, and that's what we've been doing, and I'll talk more about it. So the first was a little study. Fortunately, we had a donor who gave us a little money internal funding is very helpful to get yourself started, I would say. This donor uh, and his small amounts of money he gave us, uh, added up over the years, stimulated a number of NIH grants because of the data he helped us obtain. Uh, So we first looked in a very simplistic fashion at white matter lesions in the brain using very standard MR techniques. And if I can use this properly. Somewhere in here is a button, I can put it Yeah, so you can see a little lesion. These are what are called fo- focal my- you know, hyperintensities of lesions. These are more diffuse lesions. These are presumptively vascular, and some people think these tend to be, uh, these more diffuse lesions tend to be neurodegenerate. But whatever they are, we found that there were more of them in the small group of diabetic patients we followed, oh, not followed, but we not control group. So this set it off and made a lot of sense. Retinopathy, microvascular disease, the retina is sort of part of the brain. So, aha, this is a vascular hypothesis that we now have. And we then pursued it, and this was the basis of the first grant we We also did spec in the same population, poor men's pet. And we found, interestingly, uh, that there were, in, and this is an example of one patient, there were, across the board, in most of the diabetic individuals, decreased uh, areas of activity in the frontal lobes in particular and in, in the scattered temporal lobes. These are the areas, of course, to regulate affect and also cognition. So it became interesting as a background to the study, and we pursued this in different ways. So this is how we got started. Uh, we had a kind of a working hypothesis. Uh, it was largely driven, actually, through the micro and macro angiopathy path, and this is what we've been doing in studying these conditions uh, in this way since I've been this more. In the first studies, and since that time, we've used a variety of MR techniques that you may be familiar with, and I'll kind of introduce them as we go forward. They're assessments of, of what we call volume density is a form of volume, vascular lesions, white matter integrity. And I'll present a little bit of data about some, some functional imaging that we've been doing that ties into sort of the main line of what I'm talking about today. Uh, so this was the first study. It was actually a fairly large study uh, of 180 people. Uh, the diabetic individuals were selected to be relatively young relatively healthy. We we tried to exclude patients with (coughs) severe complications because we didn't want to be, if you will, confused by the multiple factors. Though, of course, we were then uh, playing against ourselves because if you're taking out people with severe complications like, let's say, retinopathy, you're also probably taking out the same people who might have uh, vascular disease in the brain. But this was our choice we made in this study because we wanted to have a focus primarily on glycemic dysregulation. And we did gather people with a diverse exposure based on HBA1C levels and prior severe hypoglycemic events so that we could look at those factors most uh, particularly. Uh, so this was our our attempt to repeat what we had just seen in that little study. And the bottom line is we showed that we were wrong. Uh, there was no difference between this diabetic population and the non-diabetic population in terms of the severity and number of these white male lesions. And as I said, we were playing the game against ourselves. But nonetheless, that's what we found. Uh, this is in the, similar to what Dr. Branson found in a much older population, uh, 60s. Uh, who were smaller in size, there was only 40 per group, but they had long duration diabetes. They had more retinopathy, more atherosclerosis. There was somewhat of a decrease in certain areas of cognitive functioning that you might expect. They weren't used were somewhat different, But there was no difference in the number of white matter lesions. They weren't that severe. And uh, they also measured the extent of cortical atrophy that was really the difference there. So Dr. Brown's, in a sense, confirmed, and this, these are really, that I know of, the only two studies that have ever looked at this, even though there's a lot of interest in this. And we'll come back to that as, soon as I know. Dr. Luxinger in the audience is now a collaborator on this EDIC, DCCT study we're, we're about to put out, and uh, so we've been talking about it. Uh, that's in distinction to type 2 diabetes, where here's a study uh, that was done that shows that, in fact, the type 2 sample had, of course, plenty of people with micro, and disease, but not much older or different age than the brand study, And yet, uh, they had significant worse, les- worse lesions and worse cognitive function. So as I said, you can't use the model of type 2 diabetes to type 1 diabetes. And there are more studies of type 2 diabetes, and it's more uh, brain disease in type 2 diabetes for a host of reasons that are probably fairly obvious what we can talk about. Uh, so this is our attempt then to move from the vascular question to more looking at what we call the cortical gray matter question and the volume question. So we use a variety of techniques. I'm presenting one of those techniques called cortical thickness mapping or analysis. It allows you to look essentially at the thickness of that gray cortex. And what you see in this fairly complex slide I'm trying to walk you through, is there's a control group, non-diabetic, non-depressed. We were purposely gathering people with and without depression, because remember, that was a big interest of in us. So we could look at the control, and we could compare them to people with diabetes who also didn't have depression, people with depression who didn't have diabetes. And people with both conditions. And this is the depression that I showed you earlier. These people didn't currently have depression, but they had a history of what psychiatrists would label major depression, the clinical depression that is most significant. And uh, in the green and nicely colored maps, you can see the red is thicker uh, than the green areas, and the purple would be the least. But importantly, if you look at these comparisons, the orange represents differences from controls and means that in fact the diabetic individuals have thinner prefrontal cortices bilaterally. The people with diabetes and depression together have even more, if you will, thinness in these prefrontal regions. And the people with depression only have a modicum of that in the left prefrontal cortex. Now, what is the prefrontal cortex? It's an area that regulates a whole variety of higher functions. Attention, attention to affect, uh, uh, working memory, that's the ability to hold a couple things in your mind. So if you're busy talking to your wife or husband while you're putting the keys down on some place that you don't normally put it down, and then you say, where are the keys? Uh, that was your working memory not working so well. Uh, and uh, my working memory is less and less good and I can tell you story after story between my wife and I uh, about our working memory uh, and where it leaves off and fails us and I hate to look at what our prefrontal cortex. Is, but fortunately we'll keep it in other ways. Uh, but importantly, now we're seeing an effect in this area uh, and this is showing it in a somewhat different fashion. It's showing a linear sorry, push the wrong button, linear relationship. So the people with depression and diabetes have, yeah, if you will, the thinnest uh, the diabetic only almost as thin, and then the controls without. <laughs> Up here, and this is the right, and this is the left prefrontal cortex. There are some differences in what each side regulates, but I think for our purposes better just motion together because these re- these regional maps and these connections are very complicated and uh, while well, there's an attempt to find that little homunculus that you may remember that you're learning about where if you put it here your finger goes like that it doesn't work that quite that nicely in these areas so for our purposes I think it's useful just. It's also true that this decreased thickness or thinness in these regions is associated with higher history or history of higher HVOC. So there's something about elevated blood sugars that's leading to these subtle but nonetheless uh, interesting effects. Uh, I will add, so I, show on uh, I guess it, didn't show up, but I will add that uh, in these studies. We also saw that these changes were associated with some subtle differences in cognitive functioning in this relatively young population. We'll come back to that. So we've also been interested in looking at white matter. And there's a technique called diffusion tensor imaging. And basically, if you think about white matter, it's tracks. So if you want to study those tracks and see how nicely lined up they are, you follow how the water moves. So if you have a nice highway, water moves this way. If it's flat, it goes in all directions. So something called fractional anisotropy is really the reverse of what you would think. That is, it's a measure of how much it spreads in all directions. So a decrease in its anisotropy means it's going in all directions. An increase means it's following these paths. So decrease is bad increases relatively. And what you're seeing in fact in this study, sorry. What you're seeing in this study is that in fact uh, the type one patients have more of the orange areas which represent the most evident effects, and those are again in these frontal temporal regions that we've been talking about. Uh, these are some of the associations to the behavioral outcomes I'm talking about. So if you will Working memory, which I described to you before, it is worse when uh, you have this breakdown in the tracks. Uh, the depression scores, the Hamilton's one of the standard depression measures that we use a lot, uh, is worse in people with uh, this more diffuse, more broken down integrity. And so, again, you're seeing these effects. Now, again, these are not severe clinical effects. You remember, these are younger people. And, but it's, it's hints and suggestions, and that's what we've been following on these interesting hints and suggestions. So uh, we, yeah, go ahead. Got you. Can you define the word vesiculous, please? <laughs> Probably not very well. It's one of the many ways uh, to describe an area of the brain. Where, where was it on the slide? The, the slide going forward, the figures. Yeah, so that's, that's an area. Point out to you. It's essentially an area in the temporal region of the brain. It's a description of what also might be described as cortical region. So it's an area that's involved, again, in this. And I only point it out because it's a specific white matter region that is part of the temporal frontal therapy. So it's, it's involved, presumably, in some aspect, with bearing messages about affect. Are these the same areas that would be involved in food in restraint, in the impulsivity around feeding behavior? I, I want to probably avoid saying it's specific to it. It's not the classic when people look at, say, the insular or the ventula. They're looking at specific regions about it. So I, I'm trying to stay away from defining a specific region defined as a specific defect, because in these studies, there's a host of different effects and they're not always entirely consistent but they're regionally consistent. And so yes, there's some connectivity around all of these things. So if you look at a description of what the superior frontal uh, (coughs) cortex does or you look at, as we'll talk about, uh, uh, other regions in this area, you'll see that they all have overlapping, if you will, functions. And so there are some classic, you know, if you will, studies that are done where a piece of the brain has been taken out and you see a change. But I, I think it's probably fair to say this is just an area that's, that's carrying information about affect. And it wouldn't be a specific change that you would see on a specific test. We do tend to see, I will say, that the most common cognitive change that we see in type one diabetes. Is something that's variously called psychomotor efficiency, which is the way you move information through your brain, the speed of moving information. So there's a motor, there's also a motor speed component. That is what that means exactly, I don't know. But both motor speed and the efficiency with with which data seems to be one of the more common changes you see in these what are called preclinical studies. And these are, again, preclinical. These are not diagnoses by a cognitive psychologist that so this is dementia. We're not talking about Does that. that your final? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we got interested uh, in looking at neurochemistry. And in particular, one of the more interesting uh, neurotransmitters interested me because I remembered from my stru- struggles with biochemistry, the TCA cycle that I can't even pronounce. And I remember all those things going around in a circle for those that you can take in biochemistry. Huge paper thing that we had on the wall some of these and now I'm sure it's online that I had a truck in my room on these things that was about this big and See all these things going on, and somewhere in that fluid produced. and of course it's ubiquitous. Yeah, if you're looking at it, you found it again right there. So that's a good sign. Remember, uh, and it's an interesting because it's the only excitatory neurotransmitter. Most neurotransmitters actually do this; you make just it that. It's all over the place. And it's been found to be excitotoxic in certain conditions. So it's seizure disorders, you've got a lot of glutamate, and there's some evidence that it causes uh, damage to neurons. Uh, and of course, if you have hyperglycemia, perhaps you're getting more glutamate because it's produced out of that same cycle. Though it's managed uh, in a much different way in the brain, it's not only produced, it's taken away, and so uh, the neurons produce it. And then the surrounding, if you will, structures pull it out and change it into glutamine, and they cycle it around and around and around. But nonetheless, it became an interesting question for us as did glutamine play any role in this? And there was then and still is a lot of interest in whether you can develop actually antidepressants and other groups based on glutamine. Uh, so we were looking again in the same prefrontal region. Uh, in the first studies, we were using a 1.5 Tesla device, which doesn't give you a clean picture of glutamate. So in truth, these first studies are a mixture of glutamate and glutamine, glutamine being an inactive substance. But for the most part, we've concluded that we're looking primarily at glutamate we'll see that we can subsequently been to use stronger magnets to pull this out. So this was a study we did. Uh, in did a lot of the analyses with this team in Seoul, Korea. So all this data <laughs> in and they analyzed it. And what we were looking first is the effective uh, primate glycine control, that is uh, HbA1c levels on, of course, glucose. That would be expected to be higher. But also on glutamate. And again, patients with worse hba one cs have higher glutamate or glutamate plus glutamate levels in the brain in that region we were looking at. Uh, more importantly, these levels in the diabetic individuals <coughs> were associated with a host of these same kinds of changes, worse depression scores, worse psychomotor efficiency, worse memory functions, not seen, of course, in the diabetic non-diabetic individuals, uh, but again, maybe there's something there, and we start, we kept pursuing it. This is just a, a, a picture of one of those uh, relationships. So this is uh, this is a regression line of glutamate levels and memory. And you can see uh, as glutamate goes up, memory functions decrease. You don't see that sort of interaction term or interaction effect between the uh, and so uh, we then pursued this to the next level. And we're, I'm going to present to you a little data from our fMRI work. This is uh, looking at acute hyperglycemia, uh, hyperglycemia. Most of our fMRI studies involve insulin clamps that drop the trigger system. And we're looking at diabetic versus non-diabetic individuals and looking at glutamate changes acutely, because we were curious whether these were chronic changes or whether they actually responding to the acute changes in blood glucose levels. And uh, then we're looking at functional connectivity. We'll talk more about that. functional connectivity. So this is uh, kind of a model of what we did. As I said, most of our studies involve dropping blood sugars, but they follow more or less the same pattern. Don Simonson, uh, our endocrinologist, uh, was trained at Yale, did hundreds and hundreds of clamps. Uh, what the hard part of doing this, I'll say pragmatically, is not doing the clamps. Don does those exquisitely well, or the MR machine is putting the two together, mm-hmm. because to get this, to get the blood and to be able to evaluate it, you need to keep a hand high. How um, do you keep the hand hot? Put it in a hot box. What's the hot box made of? Something that can't tell you from or So we spent a lot of time figuring out how to create our own version of a hot box that was consistent with being an MRI machine and consistent with drawing blood from a long distance. If you're not sitting next to the person, you're in another room. <laughs> so I won't bore you with the details. We have to tell you it takes a couple of years to work this out. And, and Don, so this is a, a schematic of this particular study, and you can see we were studying people under euglycemic conditions and uh, hyperglycemic conditions. We were doing structural scans at the beginning, spectroscopy at two points, and looking at functional connectivity using, uh, in this case, uh, fMRI under resting state condition, which was a task like you see a lot in the New York Times. So it was Happens. These were rest, We've done task-related uh, So this is really a summary of what i just said. In this instance, it's a three Tesla machine, so we can pull out the glutamate itself in a much more precise fashion. And, and we're looking now at the anterior cingulate cortex, another region which is midline, you can see where it is in red. And we were comparing to the occipital lobe. You remember, may remember the spec that showed you. There were very, almost no changes in the occipital lobe. So we're using that as a control condition for this study. Analysis. So we could look at the key locations and compare to have. Am I doing OK for time? Yeah, OK. Uh, as a psychotherapist, we ran on a clock. Well, Robin informed me that there could be pressure at the end of the room at the end of the time as soon as you know it. But as a therapist, I'm quite used to telling people and so you can tell me, I'm sorry our time is up. But Dr. Jason said, I think i killing myself. Well, I'll see you next Thursday. Yeah, I fine. Mean, <laughs> so, uh, so maybe. Yeah, so if, if any of you are feeling suicidal, i elsewhere, but, but uh, I won't feel suicidal if you force me to stop early. So uh, this is just a, s- a series of, uh, of examples of what we found. Uh, importantly, we did find that uh, as glucose went up, so did glutamate levels. So it's responding acutely in the way we hypothesize. So it changes. Uh, and therefore, uh, something's happening that could be short term. So there's a lot of interest now in glycemic variability. So maybe glycemic variability has some real effect. Short-term pulses up, short-term drops down. Maybe there's something that happens at the, uh, if you will, uh, transmitter level that we can see. Mm -hmm. Only observation I know anybody's made Uh, on this. This is looking related to HbA1c level, and you can see the same relationship as HbA1c goes up, so does glutamate. So it's confirming what we spoke in the first book. So that was real. That wasn't just the glutamine. There was something about the glutamine. Did you take any psychological measures while this was happening? Not. Oh, I'm sorry. That was you me um, During this study, I don't remember if we did or not, Actually, you know. so It would be interesting to know if you are in fact getting cognitive effects from these increases. Well, we've done other studies where we do see those effects. We've done. a lot of- glutamine. Yeah, no, that that I don't, you know, Frank, I have to go ask, the, the, ask him because I don't remember that at this point. I'll, I'll find out and I'll shoot an email to Robert. Uh, uh, the person who would know Nick Bolo I, I don't have it on these slides, so I don't remember. But there's other things that are not presented, so I can't answer the question. But it could be uh, So I've uh, already reported that. And this is simply showing that the functional connectivity changes. So what is functional connectivity? So functional connectivity is the extent to which networks work together. You can have de- increased or decreased. Well, the, the implicitly it sounds like increased is better. It's not working together more, or more collaborating. But I, a, a better perhaps model is you hire someone to put up a brick wall. Strong, tough person, you only need one or two of them. Weaker people, slower people, less functionally capable people. You have to hire more people to get the work done at the same time. So there's a, there's a, an extent a hypothesis that increased functional connectivity actually represents a need for the brain to pull in more resources to get the work done. So actually, implicitly, we suggest that increased functional activity may compensate for, so you might not see cognitive changes, because what the brain is doing is, is actually compensating and pulling in more capable, capable individuals, so to speak. I don't know that. But that's actually what conceptually it means. And we've seen changes in multiple studies around this. So quickly, we saw that glutamate seems to be changing with acute chronic, uh, hyperglycemia. We see an effect in a region that's very involved in a number of these cognitive and emotional regulation issues. Uh, the increased functional activity, as I said, may reflect uh, increased activation required to achieve achieve the same level of cognitive function. So i have I have to go back and look at the last. And there's a difference between diabetes and not. So uh, here we are back to kind of our little working model. We're now filling in this food question in our research, and this is ongoing research. This is not I any mean, a finished product, uh, but it is uh, kind of where we've gotten to over the course of the last ten years in these series of studies that are continuing in this particular vein. Now, there's a whole other set sort of studies that have nothing to do with this particular. Uh, so let me shift gears, because now this is a real clinical study. Uh, this is, and in fact, whenever I propose anything to the group, uh, their first question is, does it make any clinical difference? They're, they're less, and because it's a clinical trial, and they're less interested in interesting hypotheses that are kind of percolating up. They want to know, and in fact, I've been critiqued on this more than once, about wanting to engage uh, the group in doing imaging. It's not going to show anything clinically meaningful. To me, which I understand, understand So I'm sure you know all this, but it, it was, we randomized 1,441 people in 1982. We followed them for an average of six and a half years, a range of three to nine years, actually. We saw these major reductions in the following ever since we that They are the most incredibly loyal participating group. I'll tell you one story. A few years ago we were at a meeting and one of the nurses gets up and shows a slide, sadly, of some of the tomb stuff. But on that tombstone, she notes, not only she's married that, but that she's a her head. Incredible participant, uh, so we are following, I don't know the exact number. But well over 1,100 people, we see 95, 94 percent of the people still living, and most of them are still living you can uh, every year at annual visits. Uh, there's a variety of studies that come out, hundreds of papers showing the effects, the late effects metabolic memory. Go uh, through those multiple ancillary studies to enrich the information about the sample, and now they've got no. So the average age will be next year, 58. They'll range from the early 50s, but over 40% of them. Uh, 40, over 40% of people are over 61 or 62, so the aging cohort. Uh, and now, interestingly, this is funny for me. So when I got involved in DCCT, I was involved because the pediatricians were scared that we would ruin the brains of the kids. With hypoglycemia, those of you familiar with the data, there were threefold increases in your hypoglycemia. And so uh, we then put together a very extensive four and a half hour test battery, uh, which was done actually at baseline and then year five, and/or because some people didn't uh, go even five year study end. And we looked at the results. And then we got extra funding from NIH for an XLA study. We were able to repeat, essentially, to 12, which is about 18 years after baseline. Uh, and the primary question was, gee, is the hypoglycemia really causing damage to the You'll see the primary goal now is really to look uh, differently because of So, this is what we found. This is from the New England Journal in 2007. This was the follow up study, but it's similar. There were no effects of hypoglycemia that we reported. A lot of controversy about that. People who reanalyzed the data uh, because they were convinced we were wrong. Uh, They then wrote a paper and said, okay, we analyzed it, which is good. Uh, And so, there were no differences between those. And this is using the definition of severe hypoglycemia as requiring coma and seizures. So that smaller group. We also analyzed the data for a broader definition that included genetic health. Uh, but we wanted to look at really was there an effect on the brain? We didn't see the effect of the it. Uh, there was an effect, interestingly, modest though it was, in the area of, that I talked about psychomotor efficiency and motor speed. So the patients who had higher HP so so and C cello had suddenly worse uh, psychomotor efficiency at this point we followed. This was not seen during BCCT, so there's an effect that's uh, perhaps developing over time, even though the study is now ended uh, six years ago, or 12 years before. Uh, <clears throat> we looked at, uh, we developed a kind of uh, a uh, multiple variable model of the psychomotor efficiency effect, and you can see in yellow on the left, the independent effects of A1C, carotid thickening, proliferative diabetic not the immune you know, complications. So the HbA1C effect was seen even after adjusting for these complications, which is interesting. Because more people say, well, it's a complication. But you can still see the effect. So there's a model in which all of, the thing, all of these are entered uh, singly, but then at the end they're actually looked at independent of one another. So these are two independent effects. Very modest effects, but there are effects again in a relatively younger <coughs> young to what I'll call at most middle aged population. Who are remarkably healthy, of course that's the only thing is about the effective even the control subjects have done very well with terms of like so they then we're pushing the envelope we'll, uh, a little bit against yeah. uh, So now they've been followed for an additional 14 years. Uh, it's uh, Unless the government falls apart, they will fund the next phase so of the study. In a little worried, I will tell you about the government falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that's a different conversation for another time that my family has on a regular basis. Uh, and I have a neighbor who watches the polls every day and sends okay. me emails. Harold's from Chicago, too, by the way. And uh, he's retired, so he has more time to obsess One of the big parts about work is that, the I mean, periods here's a day I can't focus on it. So uh, but but that will be funded. And AIM-1 is really a study of aim work. So while I was at the Caboose in the beginning of the study, I get a kick out of that. I'm now part of AIM-1. Uh, they, they will not joked about this you know, so uh, we will look at aging effects of physical function, frailty, cognitive function, affective function, and this is included in the program that I'm pretty sure is going to be funded. Uh, but, and so this is a kind of working model. That looks very similar. It's taken out of the grant, not this grant, but taken out of another grant. So the good thing about the study, if those who know it, you studied these people up, down, sideways. We have an incredible amount of data. And we're going to get some really interesting new data. So for example, we're going to have data on the, on the thickness of the retina from ocular coherence tomography that we're going to do, which will be fascinating because you can look at neurodegenerative links between the retina, not just vascular, but end the, and, the retina, and that will be fascinating. And uh, in addition to that, it, it seems like NIH has discovered the brain. I've been at like six conferences in the last three years on diabetes and the brain. It's like, diabetes, brain, forget it, forget it, forget it. So, oh, don't forget it, don't forget it, don't forget it. And in fact, there's an RFA out uh, on the, you know, these DP3 things uh, to specifically look at uh, glycemic dysfunction and its effect on neurocognition. So Jose, myself, and Jude and Penn and Chris Bryant and a very wonderful neurologist at Utrecht are putting together, of course, the DC people are putting together a brain less confidently funded, but we're working on to really use the neuroimaging techniques that we talked about to look within the brain and uh, any subset of the and uh, I will more about it, but now we have a chance to look actually internally in this black box. So, last, go back to my clinical side. Uh, whatever the specific mechanisms, no question there are a lot of psychosocial issues in uh, that. And they provide, from my perspective, and when i give them lectures to psychiatry audiences, I've talked about this about ways to build connections between medical services and medical services for chronically old patients with diabetes or conditions. And in fact that's really good in my love of life and the work for them. So I also love pictures <laughs> uh, and the pictures on the paint. So but this is a nice and this is a very old New Yorker cartoon that I've changed two or three times. Uh, but the original <laughs> picture is the same the guy showing up, you know, getting his car checked. And uh, he's also being told his blood sugar levels are really low. I got a kick out of this. I used this in Hong Kong, where putting, they were then putting <laughs> into places like this. Uh, but I got a kick out of it because I love cars. So I changed a little bit. And in the old days, we were studying ego development and social psychiatry. Uh, and uh, now we're studying MRIs and maybe <laughs> in some other way mm-hmm. and then perfect. Uh, so this is the group of people I've mentioned several so well, them. I just want to add a couple of other things. But uh, Dale's a cognitive ne- neuroscientist at jo- uh, excuse me, at Johnson who joined me several years ago. Henny has uh, been with me from the time she was a grad student. In fact, she's retired. It's a lot of introduced me to neuropsychology but I know about as a, a, a physiologist. Harry ran for many years, the MR Center, where he did most of our work at a, a plane hospital in Boston. He's a psychiatrist and a physicist. And he was the one who we went to to develop a lot of the ideas. Nick is a physicist who worked with him in the other uh, so anyway, thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. I guess I have a couple of questions. Um, thank you very much. I think we have a couple of minutes for questions. Laurie. So if you look at the DCCT data, but can you focus pop- parse it by age of onset of diabetes? Do you recapitulate that early finding that you had where the early age of onset matters? Uh, we can. The patients, uh, if you remember the study guidelines, had to be 13 to yeah, get so so like, a No, no, process. no, but I thought it's the age but, of onset. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So let me the finish. finish they had to be 13, and there were two cohorts, a 1 to 5 year duration with really clean, and a 1 to 15 to 13 year duration. So there are a small subset of people who got diabetes when they were young. But remember, that's a subset of a subset. So we've never really spent much time on it. But it, it's worth looking at again. Yeah. I don't know how many kids there were, for example, who were diagnosed, let's say, before the age of seven who were doing this stuff. There are certainly some. I just never looked at it. Pretty could be easy to look at. And of course, then we'd look at that age. I uh, may have mentioned this, but do circulating levels of glutamate? Circulating in the yeah. about? we've never looked at that. These are all brain mutilate right. levels. Uh, you of course take in some of the same stuff, you know, through MSG, monosodium glutamate. So I don't know that eating Chinese food, though I tend to ask for it without MSG, for other reasons, the the peripheral symptoms that I get. I don't know that any of that gets into the brain but, uh, that would have any effect. in terms of your uh, uh, MS studies, I mean, um, LASL carnitine and another metabolite, both free and and generated, um, has been implicated in the CNS in in animal models of depression. I was just wondering if you got more bang for the buck in the studies, if you were also able to get those levels and do the similar correlations between the healthy and the T type 1? Uh, You know, we have uh, we we look at a variety of them, we focused on glutamate to back, we're also interested in those And all. And, and so, so we're going to look at some of these other, uh, uh, if you will, transmitters or neural metabolites and see their effects. We've kind of stayed focused because we've a hypothesis We have the data. That's So when we look at a specific region, we get the entire Ellen, thank you very much.